0: Everybody? So good to be with you guys as always. Special welcome to those who are with us for the first time. Like I say every week, if you're new and I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, I would love to be able to do that. Uh, Right after the service, I'm usually hanging out right down here in front. I want to give a special acknowledgement to folks that are joining us online as well. We've heard from uh, many of you throughout uh, the week or so, uh, not feeling good. Some of you are preparing for major surgery, and we just want you to know that we're thinking about you, we are praying for you, and we can't wait to have you back in the room uh, with us. So if you've been around for the last few weeks, you know that we've been opening up our Bibles and we've been looking at this ancient text that has wisdom for modern times. So here's where we're at in the story, it's God's grand story of all creation. We learned that in five and a half days, God creates most everything, the heavens and the earth, plant life, animals he saves as his crown jewel of all creation, male and female. Only men and women, humans, are created in the image of God. We come to chapter three, and the story takes a dramatic turn. For the worse, last week, I gave a summary of the last half of the chapter but we really need to do a deeper dive. And that's what we're gonna do this morning. And the reason why we're gonna do a deeper dive is because this text explains why there's so much dysfunction in the relationships that matter most to us. Let me say that again. This text actually describes, helps us understand, also gives us the solution to the dysfunction we experience in the closest relationships that we have. By way of review, God places Adam and Eve in a beautiful environment, the Garden of Eden. The word Eden literally means delight. Gives them everything that they would ever need and more. Lays down just one restriction because God is not a God of restriction. God is a God of tremendous freedom. Just one restriction. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees in the center of the garden. From these two trees, the entire destiny of mankind will, will unfold. Don't eat from this tree, God says to Adam. Adam relays the conversation to his wife, Eve, and then this slithery creature comes into the scene. As I said last week, he speaks a different story, tells a different version. He's crafty and cunning, and his words end up manipulating playing on what is inside every human. It's human nature to want to become gods. And that's essentially the offer. Don't rely on God's wisdom, you have your own. God is hiding things from you. He gets Eve to question the goodness of God and then to doubt the badness of sin, and she eats. Adam, her husband, is standing, watching, observing. He participates, and everything changes. But God, like a good and loving parent, you've ever had a wayward child you still love that child intensely you pursue that child you want to do everything you can to give that child life and yet at the same time there are consequences and so what we read in the second half of Genesis chapter 3 reveals a lot it's the consequences of disobedience toward the God who created us in a nutshell this is why the world is so jacked up Everything changes from this moment forward. And so God begins to address each responsible party and he begins with the serpent, Genesis chapter three, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you played the role of manipulator, deceiver, cunning, crafty. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Of all the animals, in some way they will suffer some consequence of the fall. But you, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So God speaks directly to the serpent first, telling him that he will be on his belly. Some speculate that before this the serpent was upright, which would be absolutely horrifying. Regardless of the specific details, this creature is the embodiment of evil, anti-God. <laughs> uh, this creature is the embodiment of cunning and deceit. It's interesting because the prophet Isaiah, who speaks so beautifully about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ with tremendous specificity. Okay, you can't make this stuff up, okay? Hundreds of years before the time of Christ, this prophet is speaking details that are just, they're crazy in how obscure and accurate they are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But he also speaks in Isaiah chapter 65 about the restoration of all things. And what he says is that the Garden of Eden is going to be recreated one day. And he says, in fact, let me give you a a little sample of that. The wolf and the sheep are going to eat together. How crazy is that, right? The wolf and the sheep actually eat together. What that means is that there's no fear. That's how things were in the Garden of Eden. And it's going to be restored. But then you know what the prophet goes on to say, but let's talk about the serpent, the snake, because he's still going to be eating dust. Okay? That's chapter 14. That's the consequence to the serpent. But there's more that comes because then it gets really interesting. Remember Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 Satan is described as that serpent of old. But then in verse 15, things get really, really interesting because there's another consequence. It says, I will put enmity, and enmity describes open hostility. I will put hostility, there will be open hostility between you, serpent, and the woman. Now, in general, women don't like snakes, okay, right? So they got that going immediately. But then you get this. There will be opposition between your offspring and her offspring. And you think, what kind of offspring does Satan have? Well, if you read the rest of the Bible, it's really, really fascinating because everybody falls into one of two categories. There are really only two families. Everybody wants to divide by, by race, by economics, by you know, education, career, so many things, right? The Bible divides everybody into one of two categories. You're either in the family of God or you're in the family of Satan. This is why this is why it's interesting. This is why Jesus says to certain people, you're acting just like your father, the devil, because see, kids take on the persona, the attitude, the actions of their dads. So you're either acting like your spiritual father God, or you're acting like your spiritual father, Satan, but you're acting like one of those two. So the entire world is divided into one of those two. So in that sense, there is an offspring of Satan. But then it gets even deeper and more spiritual because it says this, he, there's a specific offspring, he shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this epic battle that's going to take place between the offspring of a woman, a specific individual, He will crush the head of Satan, which describes a fatal blow, but Satan's gonna fight back, kind of how a snake bites and bites on the heel, and that's painful, but it's not fatal. This is, in seed form, this curse. The rest of the Bible is the outworking of this. Let me just say that again. (laughs) That's how significant this statement is. The rest of the Bible is the outworking of this curse, that an offspring of a woman will come, crush the works of Satan, but Satan's not going to give up without a fight. He will deliver a blow, and it will be painful. The New Testament opens up with these biographies about the life of Jesus. And what we learn is that Jesus is that offspring who comes and crushes the works, indeed Satan himself. If you read the book of Revelation, you see the fulfillment of that. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, so there's this little seed of hope. You see God being, you know, he brings consequences, but you also see this, this mercy and this grace in the midst of these consequences. The next consequence is on Eve. Now, ladies, ladies, Typically in life, they find themselves in a couple of significant roles, relationships in life. Um, motherhood through childbearing or through adoption, and, and also marriage right? as wives. Two primary roles that ladies find themselves in. So the consequences of the fall affect these two primary roles for uh, the ladies. But again, you're going to see this intermingling of God's grace and his judgment in in what comes next. First, this great joy of giving birth to a child and and this life, it's going to be invaded by pain. Verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Isn't this why epidurals are so popular now? (laughs) Trying to reverse the curse with the needle. Pain, I mentioned it last week and um, it's worth exploring because I got a lot of feedback on just one little side comment that I made. The word for pain here is very interesting, this Hebrew word, because it doesn't simply refer to physical pain and it doesn't simply refer to a one-time act of pain, but it literally describes pain that works, pain that is at work, it keeps on working. Uh, in other words, motherhood will be filled with pain but it won't end at the birth of the child (laughs) I see some moms nodding their heads there will be ongoing pain that that child brings into your life emotional Uh, think about Eve as she gives birth to Cain. This is the first baby. She's like, wow, the wonder of God's design. I did this. With the help of God, literally, that's what she says. And so as moms do, holding and looking in the face of this child, squeezing it, kissing those cheeks, sniffing that skin. What is she thinking? Could this be the offspring that's gonna crush that slithery creature that deceived me? Could this be the one that destroys his works? Because I was told the offspring of a woman will come. And as a parent, you have all these intense hopes and dreams for your child. And she's thinking, is this the deliverer? Well, it's not a deliverer that she's given birth to. It's a murderer. Let say that again. <laughs> it's not a deliverer that she's given birth to. This first child is actually the first murderer. Because as we'll see next week, that's the, much of the source of family dysfunction is also explained in the Bible. The first act of murder was between family members. There's ongoing pain in raising children, and it doesn't stop at birth. Why? Because now sin has infected the human race. And so what you're raising is a little sinner. And that's going to be really messy. And that's not always going to go the way you want it to go or the way you think it's going to go. There will be pain now that keeps on working as a result of the fall. And then there's a second consequence that falls on Eve, and that's with her, her marriage. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you." What does this mean? Well, a lot of it depends on how you define the word desire. So there are some who take this Hebrew word, seek to understand its use throughout the rest of the scripture, and that's always good practice. And so will you find this Hebrew word in the Song of Solomon. And there, clearly, it refers to a sexual desire, so there are some who have put forth the idea that what this means is, is that even though there, there, will be ch- there will be pain in bearing children, a, a woman will still find her husband sexually desirable. About 45 years ago, a woman named Susan Foe was attending Westminster Theological Seminary, and she writes about Uh, the same word using a different interpretation uh, based on a more immediate context. The same word is actually found in the very next chapter. And it's used to describe, we'll get more in, in detail with this next week, but it's the word used to describe what happens inside of Cain. When there's something that begins to rise up within him, in fact, I'll I'll read it to you, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Cain is about to fall into this temptation, and God is trying to talk him out of it. He says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Here's the same word Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So, sin's desire is contrary to Cain. If if something is contrarian, that means it's opposed. It's, it takes a different position than you. If you desire something, you're fixated on it. It's like it's all you can think about. It's all you want. So this imagery is really powerful. Sin is crouching. It's hiding behind this door. Cain, you're on the other side of this door, and your, your hand is right there on the doorknob. And in your, Yeah, you open up that door, bam, you're going to get pounced on. It's like observing your cat. You know what cats do? They kind of get in that position, right? You know what I'm talking about? You can watch it. And they just crouch low. And then all of a sudden, bam, they pounce. It's right there. It's right on the other side of that door. And it wants to, watch this, control you. It wants to rule you. And so then Susan takes this understanding and applies it to marriage. And what she's saying is, It will be the wife's desire to rule or dominate or have authority over her husband, but God has ordained the husband to be the leader. It can be said that Adam's first sin was to give up his role as leader because he received direct contact from God related to his wife and then watched as a bystander text tells us that his eyes were wide open eve was deceived but he watches the whole thing take place without protecting or being her leader so all of this stuff begins to come undone and it's let me just say it's crystal clear in the scriptures that both men and women are co-equal in the image of god what this means, as we've said many times, is that both have inestimable worth and value. What we read in the New Testament is that God has given specific roles to the husband and the wife. You say, why does that even have to be a thing? Well, it's kind of obvious that roles bring order to where there would otherwise be chaos. And so the Apostle Paul relates these roles in Ephesians chapter five, beginning with verse 22. He says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's been said, and I believe this to be true, that these verses are some of the most misunderstood, most misinterpreted, and most misaligned in the entire Bible. Because what happens is, especially in, in our culture, in our society, many people think that submission or subordination equals inferiority. But Jesus spent his entire life in subordination, submitting his will to the will of the Father. It takes great strength to place yourself under someone else's leadership. Now. It was always voluntary. It was never compelled. Uh, it was never forced. Right now, there are many women who are thinking, my husband is not God. In fact, he's far from it. He's far from it. Uh, this is why a wife should never follow her husband if he tries to lead her into sin that's the first thing that should be said in fact her way of loving him is to say i'm opposing you right now (laughs) no no because where you're leading me is in direct violation of what the scriptures say no clearly and obviously if there is abuse in the relationship it should be reported either to law enforcement, certainly to law enforcement church leadership should know so that we can step in and hold people accountable in the right ways but a wife should never allow herself to be led into sin by her husband and obviously there are all kinds of abuses that take place because what happens is Husbands confuse headship with lordship, and there is only one Lord that your wife has, and that is Jesus Christ, not you. Not you. So this is where I need to repeat again that no one's worth resides in his or her role. Um, Kathy Keller is the wife of pastor and author Tim Keller uh, in New York, and I admire Tim Keller, his ministry very much especially as a preacher, she says it like this, marriage is a party of two. When a decision has to be made and both parties can't agree, then the husband gets the tiebreaker. This also means that he is ultimately responsible for the consequences of the decision. Then they give an example of this in their own marriage, and it's fascinating, very insightful. Many years ago, Tim had the desire to church plant in New York. Kathy didn't want to go. She didn't want to go to New York. And she told him so. And Tim says to her, well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. And Kathy said, don't you put that on me. Don't you dare put that responsibility on me. She said to him, be a man. Be a man. And he said, it, and at that moment, uh, he realized something. What she meant is that this was my burden to carry. And it was 100% on me. And not only was it my r- responsibility, but I also have to take responsibility for the outcome of that decision. And so whenever I officiate a wedding, uh, this is the part that I include, I say, listen, I say to the, this, this, this uh, I, say, I say to the husband, your greatest counsel and advice is standing right next to you. And if you don't listen to her, you're gonna be the biggest fool on the planet. Let me say that again. You're the biggest fool on the planet. If you don't, see sometimes you have to ask yourself, and they make this point too, who does, the, who does it matter more to and why? And then enter into that in a way that as a husband, now this is where it, it gets taken to the next level, because what you're gonna see, um, Is that the responsibility for the husband actually involves submission and subordination from him as well but in a way that takes the relationship where God wants it to be taken he bears that responsibility I'll explain that in a second let me reiterate again no one's worth resides in his or her role Paul makes this very clear in Galatians chapter 3 He says, you are all, all, male and female, sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, if we're all, you know, sons and daughters included, if we're all all male and female, if we're all sons of God, why doesn't he say you're all sons and daughters of God? Why doesn't he just say that? Because you have to understand, back in the day, sons were prized. They were prized. And there was a, a hierarchy in society because sons were preferred, and so What Paul does is genius because he takes that hierarchy and he totally dismantles it and explodes it. And he says, for those of you who think that males are preferable, he says, you know what? You're all sons. You're all preferred. You're all co-equal. You all have the same worth in the sight of God. Then he goes on and he says this. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, you are all wearing the same clothes. You have all clothed yourselves with Christ. Christ. And then he blows everybody's mind. And let me just tell you that up until this point in world, in the history of the world, this kind of statement was not made. You ready for it? For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. He's not saying, he's not speaking about non-binary here in the context. What he's talking about is equal value and worth because we are all co-heirs with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is an absolutely earth-shattering statement in his time. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. That's your family. That's family of God's stuff. And you are heirs according to the promise. In other words, what he's saying is this. Your value is not determined by your race, your position in life, uh, your sex, or your gender. You are all valuable as God's family members and co-heirs with Christ. Additionally, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Dudes, you know what that means? You're a bride. Let let that sink in for a second. You're, You're part of the bride of Christ. Look. Despite what you are told, the Bible is incredibly even-handed with its descriptions. A bride is to be loved, nourished, cherished, and if you're ready for it, the husband must be willing to die for his bride. And of course, Jesus is the model. So let's turn our attention to the guys for a second. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, this is your role. Husbands, love your wives. Now, hu- husbands can be really boneheaded sometimes, you know, and it's like, well, what does that even mean? What does that look like? He's going to tell you what it looks like. Clear, let's clear up any confusion, gentlemen. Just as you love your wife, just as or in the same way that Christ loved the church. Well, we need, well, what does that mean? Okay, let's flesh it out. And he gave himself up for her. Now, the question should be asked, what's the point? Why? Keep reading. To make her holy. Well, how exactly do we give ourselves up in ways that make our wives holy? How can we make our wives holy? Keep reading. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Husbands, know how to use the word of God in order to prepare your wife to meet Jesus face to face. Let me say that again. Husbands, use the word of God to prepare your wife and your kids to see Jesus face to face. That's on you. Now wait a minute, what you're understanding is there's actually mutual submission going on here, isn't there? There's mutual subordination because now, fellas, you can no longer think of yourself and your interest, but you're now thinking of what is in the best interest of your wife. Look, so that you can present her to himself as a radiant church. Gentlemen, you will have the biggest impact on your wife's spiritual life by the way you love her and lead her. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The second time, he says, the end game of your marriage is to present your wife to Jesus Christ holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we, all of us, we are all members of his body. So for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I have a really sweet friend. His wife died of cancer many years ago. He's in pastoral ministry when his daughter was little. And uh, he he contacted me the other day. He said, "You know, my daughter. Now that my daughter's married, she married this amazing man." And he said, "You know, I'm getting the best sleep I've had in a long time." I said, "How so?" He said, "I turn my cell phone off at night now because her husband loves her." See what's going on there? Her husband loves her. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I hear what you're saying. As Christ loved the church, yes, Christ loved the church. I sleep great at night now because it's not my cell phone she's calling. He's leading her, and he's loving her. And he understands it's his job to present her to Jesus as being holy. That's the work of the word, too, right? So the husband is commanded to, to love. The wife, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. One of the reasons why we know love is not primarily a feeling is because of this command. You cannot command a a feeling. It's like I'm saying, everybody right now, be sad. Go ahead, be sad. No, but, but the command is love. That's an action. Love is an action in the best interest of, the other, of another. God is love, 1 John 4. Then it goes on and says, but the, the manifestation of that, that love is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love. Not that we love God first. See, he took the initiative, acted in our best interest, even though we didn't want to have anything to do with him, he served us. So... Um, Again, what's interesting is that when Eve is tempted by Satan, Adam becomes this passive bystander. He gives up on this role of self-sacrificing leader, and the results are catastrophic. So marriage is all about subordination for both the husband and the wife. And here's what happens. Here's the beauty of it. Christ-like subordination over time, that builds godly character. And if you are in a marriage for no other reason other than to be happy, you're in trouble. If you're in a marriage for no other reason other than to be happy, you're in trouble because you are going to be let down consistently. Uh, You don't get married to be happy. You get married to be holy. You don't get married to be happy, you get married to be holy. What you discover is when you become holy, you are truly happy. Statistically speaking, if you cohabitate before marriage, you have a higher rate of divorce. We need more young couples, Christian couples, who are demonstrating godly relationships to, to our young, to our youth. Um, but well, why do people cohabitate? Well, in, you know, in large part because people want the sex, but they don't wanna give up things. They don't wanna give up, uh, they don't wanna make accommodations. They don't wanna accommodate too many other things, but they want the sex. And well, healthy relationships are all about accommodating. I can't tell you how many times, you know, people uh, have said they're contemplating divorce, they talk to me and they say something like this. Well, my wife, my husband, they've they've just changed. They're just not the same person. And I'm like, no kidding. The 52-year-old Jason is vastly different than the 22-year-old Jason. There's been about four or five different kinds of men that I have been through that 30-year period, right? I'm completely different emotionally. I'm completely different spiritually. I'm completely different physically. Let me just give a little tip, little free tip. I'm going over, but this will be worth it. (laughs) To to all the young couples, right? So what happens is this really cool thing happens in your marriage over time. You get involved in these crazy relationships that you don't anticipate when you're young and you're standing across from each other and it's nothing but, you know, it's like wrinkle free. And so what happens is, Yeah, in a lot of ways. And so what happens is, you know, these, there's just these weird unexpected comments, but they're really sweet because they're all spoken out of love. And so your wife might say something to you like, hey, you know, I just want you to know, I have just noticed you got, a little, you got a little extra neck hair growing, you know, or whatever. You might want to trim it back here, or hey, the mustache is growing from your nose, right? Take care of it, you know. And, you, know, and then you look at it, and you're like, that's all love. It's total love. And you're like, man, thank you for that, you know. I didn't see that, you know. You're like, all of a sudden, you know, it's like, whoa, the world is totally different, right? It just happens. Then what happens is a few more years go by, and then your spouse doesn't say anything like that to you. Why? Because they can't see anymore, <laughs> right? They can't see. And then this next-level relationship, and then here's, here's the best tip, and if all of that I'm going to say, you're going to walk away with this. It's like foreplay begins by removing each other's glasses. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, what happened to your ear hair? I can't see anymore. I don't know. Well, your stretch marks are gone. This is amazing. Like this is next level relationship, <laughs> because you're not the same. You change, of course. You know, it's like not the same person I married. Yeah, exactly. What did you expect? We're going to change. If 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 you're like I married the wrong person, we all married the wrong person <laughs> because we all change. Here's the point. When a husband and wife fulfill their biblical roles, each has a very unique place in imitating the very ministry of Jesus Christ himself. Is that beautiful? There is no other earthly relationship that will give you the opportunity to do just that. A really quick word about being single. Unfortunately, our culture places a lot of pressure, you know, it's almost like you're incomplete unless you're married. Jesus was single, and he was always fulfilled. In fact, the apostle Paul says, "Um, let me just tell you, from my perspective, I am more free to do the work of God because I don't have the responsibility of a wife. Additionally, especially in the Christian community, marriage can become an idol. And those who are in our fellowship that are single, remind us, don't idolize your marriage. Do not idolize your marriage. So here's what we wanna illuminate. I have so much more to say. Um, We want men and women to understand their God-given roles and to step into those roles and to experience a marriage that doesn't just exist but thrives. But there is mutual subordination that has to take place in order for that to happen. And yet this is the very visible representation of the outworking of the triune God. You are never more like Jesus than when you offer up something in your life as sacrificial. So Father, just thank you for the good words of this book. I'm so grateful for my wife and for the gift that she is to me. Uh, Father, I continue to lean into the scriptures so that I might present her holy and blameless to you and rejoice in that on that day. I pray over everybody in the room, whether single or married, God, that we would step into the role that you have for us with humility humility and gentleness, but most of all, wanting to bring you glory and honor, recognizing the deep sacrifice that was made on our behalf. We were served so well. That's the model. When we extend it to those around us, God, not only are we a blessing to them, but we receive a blessing in return. We ask it in the name of the one who makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ and God's people said, amen.